Um, I have to say, and I've said this before over the years several times, that one of my favorite movies has got to be Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. I mean, the Temple of Doom was pretty good as well. Um, but the Raiders of the Lost Ark just set the whole tone for the whole series. And it's, I mean, it really is an epic movie. I mean, who wouldn't love the movie, right? I mean, who hasn't seen it? Get out! Get out now! <laughs> Shame on you! <laughs> uh, as a teenager, as a young teenager... And even Hannah's seen it. I mean, yes, today. Uh, you, can, you can hire it, rent it today and watch it this afternoon. It's epic. Uh, as a teen, my mom wouldn't let me watch it. I, was, I think I was about 13 when it came out. And she's like, no, no, you can't go and see that. Um, and so I had to sneak to my friend's house and watch it on pirated video um, in order to watch this truly epic movie. I mean, it, it's great. The, the, the one scene that always, that, that was just fantastic, for those of you who remember the movie, that he's in Egypt, and um, he's in this huge crowd, and running and being chased and whatever, and the crowd parts, and this guy steps out, and he whips out this huge sword and starts his... I'm going to take out Indy. And Indiana Jones, he, he, I mean, he, it's his bullwhip that's like his most significant thing, right? And he reaches for his whip and realizes he doesn't have it with him. And the script of the movie is that then there's this major hand-to-hand -hand fight, dodge, whole thing. But in an unscripted moment, Indiana Jones just goes and pulls out a pistol and shoots the guy. <laughs> and then vanishes. And the reason that that happened is because during the filming... Um, Harrison Ford had dysentery and he was so desperate to get back to the loo that he couldn't be bothered with a fight scene and so it's completely unscripted, completely unplanned. He shoots the guy and runs to the bathroom and they, the, the, the producer was like, or the director was like, that's just actually such an epic scene and they kept that in. So, I mean, what a great movie, right? Um, the whole story behind the movie is that it's pre-World War I and there is a race on to find the Ark of the Covenant, which apparently is buried in Egypt. And the Germans are after it because they reckon it will be a, um, a weapon that can be used in the coming war. Of course, Indy finds it before the Germans, but then the Germans find him and they tie up him and his girlfriend and the Germans are all excited because of the German soldiers because now they've got this, the ark and they open the lid and Indy says to his girlfriend, close your eyes, close your eyes. And they open the lid and all these weird angel things come out. They're all like, ooh, and then they melt. Um, and the Germans just like, and there's nothing left of them. But Indy and his girlfriend are safe because they kept their eyes shut. And if you're wondering, the movie ends and the ark is wrapped up in a box and exported to America and is kind of lost in a huge warehouse of American military surplus equipment. If you want to know where the ark is today, that's where it is. <laughs> the ark was a box that God had instructed Moses to make. It wasn't a very big box. It was about uh, five or six feet long, maybe not even five feet long, about two feet wide, two feet high. So it's not a particularly big box. Um, it had a, it, it was, bits of it were covered in gold. There were a couple of angels stuck on its lid and it had a couple of, of, of rings on the side with poles and the priests would carry it around on a pole. And Moses was told to make this box when he was up on, on Mount Sinai, and God said, make this box because I want to live 
among my people. Which in itself is a pretty amazing thing, a pretty huge thought that God would want to dwell among us. That God longs to live among his people. It's back to the Garden of Eden, right? With God walking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. And so here again, at, at, at Mount Sinai, God is saying, you're my people and I'm your God, but I, I don't want to be separate from you. I don't want to live up in the mountain forever. I want to be among you and in your midst and with you. And so build this box and I will, I'll sit on the box. That box will be my throne. It'll be the, the evidence of my presence in your midst. But because Moses and the Israelites are sinners... No one can look on God and live. And so the idea of God God in a box or God on a box among his people, that's not going to work. And so, so God says, listen, what you need to do with this box is you need to keep it in a tent and keep thick curtains around it so that no one can sneak a peek. Because even though I want to be in your midst, I don't want to burn you. I don't want you to all fry. I, I want to be in your midst and among you. And so they build the tabernacle, this tent, and it divides into parts. And the, the, the Ark of the Covenant is, 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 is kind of hidden in that holy of holy place. And outside of that, there's candles and tables and incenses burning all the time. And so they build this this tent, and they put the ark in it, and the end of Exodus is wonderful because the presence of God then descends upon that tent, and God moves in. God moves in among his people, and as exciting as that is, it actually leaves us hanging because Exodus ends by God's presence there in the tent, and no one, not even Moses, can go into the tent. And so all this effort to bring God among us, and yet you still can't meet him. And not even Moses can meet him. And so it actually ends in a bit of a downer. What do you call that, you know? Anticlimax, thank you. Uh, because you're, you're building up right through Exodus of God among his people, and then this anticlimax of we can't get there. And so the book of, of Leviticus is now the next book in the Bible that gets written, and that's a long book of all the laws and rules and regulations that you need to do in order to be pure enough to enter into the tent and stand in God's presence. And the book of Leviticus ends in good news because in the end of Leviticus, Moses goes into the tent. And the priests go in and offer a sacrifice. And it's like, ah, that's how it works. What happened to the ark? Well, we'll read a bit of it this morning, but it ends up in the temple that Solomon built, and it's there for a couple hundred years. And then the Babylonians come, and they set fire to the city, and the ark vanishes. And no one knows what happened. Um, some think that the Babylonians destroyed it, that someone maybe stole it, that maybe it was harvested for its gold. Um, that, that's the general popular view. There are others who would say that, no, no, the ark was smuggled out of the city before the Babylonians arrived. It's currently in Ethiopia. And so you can go to Ethiopia. Dan and Kerry are going to Ethiopia in a couple of weeks' time. We can ask them to do an investigation if we like. There's a little town on the edge of Ethiopia, and there's some churches, and there's a, there's a church in the ground, and a hole in the ground, and, and there's armed guards, and people say the ark is there. Other people say that the ark is buried under the temple mount, that it went down into the catacombs and the tunnels beneath the temple, and that currently it's being guarded by Muslim soldiers or by Mossad agents, or by both, 
and people claim that they've gone digging through and they've got to a point and they said you can't come any closer because the ark is around the corner and and and, and the things we were like where is it where is the ark and and listen to me carefully it doesn't matter <laughs> it really doesn't matter where the ark is it really doesn't um because all sorts of reasons, hopefully, that will become clear later on. Uh, the Ark is just a box. It's an interesting artifact. It would be an interesting piece of history to have were it to be around. But Indiana Jones and his German friends, enemies, whatever, thought that it was a bit of a lucky charm that could be used in war. Imagine if the Ark was discovered today, if it was still in existence. What would happen? Some people would worship it. Some people would assume that this still is the presence of God. Some people would treat it as a bit of a lucky charm. If we could just get hold of it for our country, we'd have light forever. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? Um, source of you know, power, um, free power. Anyway, um, the Ark was two things. It was the repository of the Old Covenant. Right Inside the box was the law. And it was meant to be the sign or the symbol or the reminder of the covenant that we've entered into with God. And it was a symbol of the presence of God in the midst of the people. We don't need a repository of the old covenant anymore, do we? Because we have the new covenant. And where is that? It's inside of us. We don't need a box to put the covenant in. The covenant is, Jeremiah says, I will write a new covenant on your hearts. And we don't need a box to represent the presence of God because where is the presence of God? In us. His Holy Spirit is placed in us. So we, 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 don't, we don't need that stuff. But back in the Old Testament, the ark was about the presence of God. And in Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 6, David is going to bring the ark, the presence of God, into the city of Jerusalem. So let's go there and read this chapter, the story this morning. Second Samuel chapter 6, verse 1. David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. He and all his men set out from Bala to Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, uh, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Aho was walking in front of it. Aho, Aho, it's off to work. Hi, go. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might. Before the Lord, with songs, with harps and lyres and tambourines and sistrums and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God, because the oxen had stumbled. And the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. And therefore God struck him down and he died right there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah and to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? 
And he was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now, King David was told that the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and everything that he has because of the ark of God. So David went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fatted calf. David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the, the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, watched from a window, and when she saw David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it, and David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord, and after he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty, and then he gave a loaf of bread and a cake of dates and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole cloud of Israelites, both men and women, and all the people went to their homes. When David returned home to bless his household, Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of slave girls of, the, of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. And David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from your house when he appointed me over the Lord's people. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls that you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no children till the day of her death. So two processions that take place, right? Procession number one, David takes a crowd of warriors from Balaar, where they've been staying, and takes them down to Judah, to where we assume somewhere in the vicinity of Hebron, where David has been ruling Israel for the last seven years. And there they go to the house of a guy called Abinadab to collect the Ark of the Covenant. And, and Samuel makes it clear for us what the Ark is about. This is the place where God is enthroned. So he's, the, the, the author of this passage is letting us know that it's not just that they want to go and get a box, but there is this recognition that the ark really is the throne of God, the presence of God, and if Jerusalem is going to be the new capital where God's king rules, then surely the throne of God must be there too, and God will rule from that place as well. And so they've come to collect not just the box, they've come to collect in a sense, the presence of God and bring God into Jerusalem. Now, what on earth was the ark doing in Abinadab's house? How did it get there? Why is it not in the tabernacle like Moses had told them? Well, to get that story, you've got to go all the way back to the beginning of 1 Samuel, and there was a battle. And there was a battle between the Philistines and the Israelites, and the Israelites were getting beaten again. And some bright spark said, hey, I've got an idea. Let's go and fetch the Ark of the Covenant. Because if we bring the Ark, we'll win. Because the Ark is our lucky charm. God won't let the Ark lose in a battle. I mean, God's going to save face, right? So we're kind of going to force God to act on our behalf. And, and when, they, when the Ark does come, the Philistines get it all in a twist. And they go, oh no, a God has come into the midst of Israel. And so the Philistines think, we're now going to lose. What happens? They win. They don't lose. 
The Israelites get themselves beaten. Eli's two sons die in battle. Eli, the old priest, when he hears what's happened in battle, falls over and breaks his neck because we're told he was old and heavy. Very polite. I don't know if any of you are old and heavy. Um, heavier than I was. Anyway. Um, and the Ark of the Covenant is captured by the Philistines. And so this lucky charm that's going to bring us victory is taken away by the Philistines. And the people of Israel are devastated because now the presence of God is no longer with them. Now what's going to happen? The Philistines are excited because they've, they've got a new God to hang around with. In fact, more than that, they're going to take this God to their gods to show that their gods are better than this God. And they take it to various temples and find that each temple they go to, they wake up in the morning to find that their idol gods are on their face before the Ark of the Covenant. Their idols have literally fallen down and bowed before God. And then their heads get chopped off, their idols. It's wonderful. And more than that, what's even more exciting is everywhere the Ark goes, they send it from city to city to city. It's like, yeah, we've got the Ark. Actually, we don't want it. You guys have it. And as they keep passing it around, everywhere it goes, there's plagues and there's rats. Until eventually, after doing a tour of the cities of Philistia and spreading rats and plagues as they go, the Philistines say, we've had enough of this, it's sent it back to Israel, and they put it on a cart, on an ox cart, and off it goes back to Israel. And it ends up in, um, in Abinadab's house. The whole thing, of course, is that the Israelites thought that the ark would be a little bit like a lucky charm. I think the Philistines had a similar thought and a similar idea. We've got an object of power in our midst. It doesn't work like that for either of them, does it? And just, you know, a silly little thing to say, but I hope you know it. Just because you wear a cross around your neck doesn't mean that you're going to be spared from disaster. Just because you have Psalm 91 printed on the back of your car doesn't mean that your car will not get stolen. Right, Sleeping on your Bible at night will not chase away the nightmares. It will give you a stiff neck, nothing more. Because this is not a lucky charm. Right? We don't have holy things. If, if, a, if a vampire appears at your house, it's no good sprinkling holy water on him. Because there's no such thing as holy water. Okay? Um, rather use a, a, a wooden stake and lemon or some garlic. But holy water doesn't work because... Okay. Getting distracted. The ark ends up at Abinadab's house. It's been there 40 or 50 years. And now David decides it's time to go and fetch the ark and bring it to Jerusalem. And I think David has mixed motives in this. I, I, I suspect the first intention really is, let's bring God to Jerusalem. God has appointed Jerusalem to be his city, his place in the promised land. God should be there. We're going to build a temple for him there eventually. Let's bring God to Jerusalem. I think there's good motive in that. I think it's great. And there's lots of Psalms that seem to refer to this event, to this story. Open up the gates that the King of Glory may come in and so so let's bring God let's let, let's see God among his people let's see God in their midst in the midst of them and the people we see they are enthusiastic they're they're dancing they're celebrating this coming of God into the city but we'll see in a moment I do wonder if David also has a bit of a this is a lucky charm and when it doesn't work out quite how I want it I don't want it anymore so here's what the people do. They get to Menadab's house and they load the ark onto an ox cart. Who were the last people to put the ark on a cart? 
the Philistines. Now, how, do you know how was the ark meant to be transported around? It's meant to be carried on your shoulder with poles by priests. It's not meant to be on an ox cart. And it seems like David and his friends have gone, ooh, the Philistines dra dra dragged it around on an ox cart. That sounds like a good idea. It's a lot less effort. Rather let an ox pull the cart than a few guys having to carry this thing for however many miles it's got to go. Let's just put it on an ox cart. And, ooh, we'll put it on a new cart. Mm. God will be so impressed. Maybe we'll even weave ribbons into the ox's tail. I don't know. Can you do that with an ox's tail? Uh, does an ox have... Yes, ox tail. Mm. Um, it's not meant to be transported on an ox cart. And so when it goes along and it hits a bump and the ox is about to topple over, Uzzah, thank goodness for Uzzah, right? Thank goodness Uzzah's on the spot to save God's dignity and to rescue the ark and make sure that the ark doesn't splash down in the mud. And Uzzah reaches out and grabs the ark and makes sure that it doesn't fall over. Thank goodness for Uzzah and his quick reactions. Not, yeah. Remember, Uzzah's grown up with the ark in his house. I'm, I don't know, but I'm pretty sure that he would have grown up with his dad, Abinadab, saying to him, don't touch. Right? Just like you do with your kids. And they want to plug their finger into the plug hole and you go, don't touch. Dangerous. I'm pretty sure that Abinadab has told that, to, that story to his kids for years and years and years. Don't touch. Don't touch. Don't touch. Uzzah is now 30, 40, 50 years old. I don't know. And he's heard all his life, don't touch. And now here he is. With the, the ark on a cart, and it's about looks like it's about to topple over, and he reaches out his hand, and he's struck down by God. He is nuked. He dies on the spot. It's like instant. And although he shouldn't have touched the ark, I mean, we know he shouldn't have touched the ark. But doesn't it feel like a little bit of overreaction on God's part here? Just, just a little bit. I mean, it's not like this guy's an axe murderer. It's not like he's into kitty porn or anything. I mean, he's not a terribly bad guy. In fact, he's probably a really nice guy. And he's done great. He's looked after the ark for the last 20, 30, 40 years. And he's just trying to do his little bit to help and make sure that the ark doesn't fall over. I mean, it's got to not just overreact, just a tad. There are some who say, that this story does not reflect who our God really is. That our God is a God of love and niceness and kindness, and God would never do that. And uh, it was probably more an overreaction on Uzzah's part, and he had a heart attack because, I don't know. But you can't blame God for this, apparently. But, but this is our God. Because our God is a holy God. That's why we sang those songs that we did this morning. That God is a holy God. And we often lose sight of that. And, and, and you know, some people have said this, some, some, some of the commentators are reading this week. What would dirty the ark more? A little bit of mud and dust? Or the hands of sinful man? A well-intentioned, but sinful man. You know, there was a reason that the ark was meant to be hidden in a tent and in fact, when it was transported, it was meant to be covered in a cloth as well. 
There's a reason that it was meant to be hidden and covered from the people. And the reason is that God is holy and we're not. How can man look on God and live? More than that, how can man touch God and live? Remember when Isaiah has the vision of God in the temple? Except he doesn't actually have a vision of God. He has a vision of the tail end of God's robe. That's what he sees. He sees the, the little bit of God's shirt hanging out. That's what he sees. And even that is enough for Isaiah to say, Woe is me, I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips. He said, undone literally means I am unmade. Right? I am, I am about to be vaporized and reduced to my constituent parts. I'm about to become random floating atoms. Just because he saw the edge of God's shirt. Our God is a holy God. And, and Isaiah, he, he needs an angel to come and touch his lips with a burning coal and say, See, I have cleansed you. And God is still a holy God. God has not changed. He is still pure. And still sin can still not be in His presence. And so we are still in this moment then of how is it that uh, unclean people like you and me can enter into the presence of God and see Him? Because, to be honest, you are, you've done naughty things this week. Don't tell me. I don't want to know. It's not public confession time. But how can, how can a holy God live among sinful men without sinful men and women being vaporized? And I think so often the modern church makes so much of God's love and God is my best friend and God is my buddy. High five God. Sing songs about Jesus, my boyfriend. And we so often lose sight that God is holy. And his fierce wrath burns. Now, there is a resolution for us in this. Just as there was for Moses. How can Moses enter into the presence of God? Well, for Moses there are sacrifices that he has to perform. And ceremonial washings and clean robes and all sorts of things that make it possible for him to enter into the presence of God. But those sacrifices offer day after day after day, year after year, and blood must be spilled. And for us... There is a once forever sacrifice of Jesus our Lord. And Hebrews tells us that he has made holy. Those who are being made holy. It's kind of a weird thing. Are we made holy or are we being holy? Are we becoming holy? And the answer is both. That he has made us pure. He has cleansed us. And that we stand before our father, his father, as purified, as cleansed. But, sin remains. And there is a lifelong process of removing the stain of sin from within us. Uzzah puts his hand out and the anger of God burns. And what's David's response? The anger of David burns. <laughs> I love that, right? God is angry? Well, fine, I'll be angry too. And David gets all angry. And it's kind of humorous that they're both here, right? But David's anger is all about indignation. How dare God do this? How on earth? What gave God the right? 
God should be grateful. Look at what we're doing for him. We're bringing him to Jerusalem. We've got him a brand new shiny cart. Shouldn't he be happy? How dare God impose his holiness here and now? Can't God see what a wonderful act of service we are performing on his part? Can you hear yourself in that sometimes? Maybe not quite as angry, maybe not quite as vociferous, but every now and then a little bit of a, I deserve better than this. Alright? I didn't deserve that. Why on earth would God allow that to happen? Why did God send this? God, I think you've got it wrong here. Of course, with David, the anger doesn't last long. It goes from, I am angry, to, I am afraid. I'm afraid of God. And I think David, in this moment, realizes that God is not to be trifled with. That David doesn't make the rules, that it's not all about David. But it is that whole thing that David is very happy um, for God to break out against his enemies, but not quite so happy when God breaks out in holiness here and now. And David gets afraid. And I have to think that that also is not a very bad response for us to have toward God. To experience and to understand it, to grasp for a moment the fear of God. And we often get told that the fear of God means to stand in reverent awe of God, which I think is true. But I also just sometimes think that fear means fear. Be afraid. And there is a measure of be afraid in the presence of God because our God is a consuming fire. God is your father. God loves his children. God has sacrificed his son and has taken away his wrath so that we are not driven from his presence and nor are we driven by fear. But God is an awesome God. And that word awesome comes from an old English word awful, which means to be filled with awe. But we know what the connotations of awful are. God is terrifying. And God will not squish you like a bug, but his fire does purify and does burn out the dross in our lives. And for many of us, that in itself is a terrifying thought. And so when you think of God, do you consider his holiness? Or are you more kind of consumed and enraptured with his niceness, his love, his kindness? Are you, are you kind of happy to load him onto an ox cart and drag him off wherever you need him to be? Hey God, come with me, because I, I need a bit of a lucky charm right now. So David goes, I'm angry, I'm afraid, and then he goes, God, you can't come to my house. You can't come and visit, you can't come and stay, you can't come to my house. He actually says, how can I, he gets it a little bit. He says, how can I, how can I endure the presence of God? So, in a, 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 it, you know, again, it's great that God unleashes his anger on others, but God, God can't unleash his anger on me, and God is dangerous. God is dangerous. And so David says, you can't, you, you can't come with me. And so, again, in a slightly humorous moment, David says, God, you can't come with me, so um, I'd like you to stay with Obed. Isn't that cool, right? Um, I can't keep this terrifying dog that will tear me apart. But you know what? Greg and Sue, you guys can have it. <laughs> I'm going to leave this violent dog with my best friends. 
Right? That's David here. God can't come to me because that's too scary. But Obed-Edom, you can have him. And here's the funny thing about Obed-Edom. His name implies that he is an Edomite. Right? So an Edomite is a different tribe. They descended from uh, Esau. They descended from Esau. So the, the, the son of Abraham from his uh, slave woman uh, descended from that, that side of things. Considered not the people of Israel. Considered regularly to be the enemies of the people of Israel. Constantly attacking Israel. They live in the cliffs on the other side there. Um, and they're the enemy of Israel. And David's like, you can't come stay in my house, but go live with the enemy. Go live with the Edomite. But it's not just Obed-Edom. He is also a git. And I mean, and I mean that in the nicest possible way. <laughs> Obed-Edom, the Gittite, from Git. Who else comes from, who else was a Gittite from Git? Anyone know? Goliath. So not only is Obed-Edom an Edomite, he is also a Philistine. There's a bit of a mixed background to this guy. And so here we've got uh, an Edomite Philistine living in the midst of the people of Israel. Not sure why. Not sure if he's got his passport and his citizenship checked or, or I don't know. But he's living comfortably in the middle of Israel, uh, an Edomite Philistine. And David goes, we cannot entrust the Ark of God to any one of God's people in case God breaks out against them. And we certainly can't have the Ark of God in, Israel, in, in Jerusalem. And we can't have the Ark of God anywhere near me. So why don't we leave the ark of God with a Philistine? <laughs> really, David? That, that's what makes me start to think of David, thinking of the ark as a bit of a lucky charm thing, right? It's too dangerous for me. You can have it. And then later on, when he finds out that things have gone swimmingly for Obed, he's like, oh no, I want it back. Because it seems like the luck's back, right? And so what, what, what happens to the git? <laughs> well, God blesses him. Him and his whole family, the whole household. I don't know. Crops are springing up all over the place. Wife's pregnant again. The dogs have had six puppies. I don't know. It's just like an abundance. Stuff's happening. And David hears about it and goes, Ooh, well, if God's going to bless him, then may maybe it'd be nice to have God back here so that God can bless me as well. And so we get to the second procession. And David goes to the house of Obed-Edom. And this time he doesn't take a bunch of soldiers with him. This time he takes a bunch of priests with him. And this time, it's very clear, they carried the ark. Let's not use an ox cart anymore. Let's carry the ark. Now, spare a moment of thought for the guys who were volunteered for the role of carrying the ark in light of what just happened to Uzzah. And I don't think it's a surprise that, you know, after six steps, they stop and say... Offer a sacrifice, please. Please. Right? It's like someone's been reading their Bible. Ah, we should carry it. That's a good idea. And then we get this wonderful bit about David dancing. And you go, what, what's with that? And why does Michal get so wound up about it? I mean, is this really about David dancing in his undies? Because that, that tends to be what people kind of say. And out of that comes where David says, I'll be even more undignified than this. And I'm like, please don't go there. Um, we don't want you dancing up and down in your underwear. Um, and, you know, I'm being undignified like David. I don't think God calls us to be undignified. I th don't think that's the point at all. In fact, the point of what's going on here is not that David is exposing himself. 
But rather than what David has done, he's taken off his royal robes and he's instead put on the outfit of a servant, of a slave, of a, of a temple servant, in fact. That's what an ephod is. So, yes, it is kind of a one piece linen. It is kind of what you would wear underneath your outer clothes. It is the item of clothing that rests nearest your skin. That, that's the definitions of it. So it is kind of a vest and undies, but it's, it's not that. The point of it is that it is the outfit of a servant. And that is why Michal is so ticked off as well. Because here you are, the great king of Israel, and you've turned yourself into a servant. You've demeaned yourself. I mean, if you're going to be a king, then act like a king. Don't act like a slave. How undignified is this? And David and Michal have this little tiff, and I've got to say, I don't think either of them come out of it particularly well. I don't think this is a good example of how to have an argument. right? David comes home to bless his family, and before he's even got his shoes off, Michal's at the door. Having a proper go at him. And David's response is just like, straight back. Daughter of Saul, I'm better than your father. Your brothers are all dead. That's nice. <laughs> no wonder Michal's just a little bit bitter. I remember as well that this was David's first wife, who he ran away from and didn't see for 15 years, and then got married to four other wives, and then decided he'd like his first wife back, and so got her from the guy that she had been married to next, and dragged her out of that nice, loving relationship, and dragged her back here. And then David decided that he needed more wives, and married several more women in Jerusalem, and had a couple of concubines added as well. And so Michal is actually just one of, I don't know, 15, 20 women? David. No wonder she's just a little bit bitter. And at the end it says that, And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no children from that day to the day of her death. And some people say, you see, God's cursed her because she had a word against David. God's cursed her. It doesn't say anything about God cursing her here. My suspicion is that just she and David were never alone in the same room ever again. And that what was once... A relationship built on, I guess, love right at the beginning. It's just, there's nothing. And it's kind of sad. And I feel for Michal in the story. Anyway, it's kind of an aside. David dancing before the Lord. And it's not just David that is dancing with abandon. It's the rest of Israel who are uh, celebrating and blowing and shouting and blowing trumpets. And we, we know from this, in reading this, and you need to read it very carefully to know this, that these guys are not Baptists. <laughs> because Baptists don't dance. I watched you. I mean, there was a bit of, there was a bit of sway, and there was a bit of, but Baptists don't dance. And we don't, we don't shout. I get an occasional half amen every now and then, but, you know, we don't shout. Some of us blow our own trumpets. But think about this. There is a real sense of the presence of God here. There is delight that God is among his people. 
There is delight that God is here. There is delight that God is coming into the city of Jerusalem. There is delight that God is going to live among his people. And there is this huge outpouring of joy. And as I say, the Psalms of open the gates and let the king of glory come in. Let us welcome God. There is joy and there is delight. And there is, there is the joy and the peace and the satisfaction that comes from that. And, and there is in this a sense of that the promises that God had made are being fulfilled. And the, 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 everything that God has promised in the promised land is, is surely going to come true because that's what this is about, isn't it? And, and there is this, this exuberance at what God is doing. And when was the last time you or I felt any kind of exuberance about God and what He's doing? I mean, they get excited because they're carrying a box. And we have the Spirit of God living inside of us. They're excited because the box has a, 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 a template of the old covenant that simply could not be kept. And we have a new covenant. One of grace. Why on earth are we not more excited than they are? They're doing this in every step of the way. They're sacrificing sheep. To keep themselves pure so that God doesn't blitz them. And we, we have the Lamb of God who is crucified for us. And it's like, where is our exuberant joy? And you know, I, you know I, I'm, I'm with Phil Collins on this. I can't dance. <laughs> but is there, is, does there lurk some joy in our hearts and so you've got in this passage in this this kind of this contrast of holy fear and joyful exuberance and they're both necessary we should stand in holy awe before our god before our holy god and, and we should be emotionally overcome with great joy and maybe even do a little two-step and then david does something strange he 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 acts as a priest. He offers sacrifices, burnt offering and a fellowship offering. One that's to do with the forgiveness of sins and one that's to do with being invited in and drawn near. And then he blesses the people. Um, perhaps it's that ironic blessing of may the, may the light of his countenance shine upon you. And then he, he breaks bread and hands out bread to the people. David acts as a priest. Now, here's what's weird. When Saul acted as a priest, God said, you can't do that, and took the kingdom away from him. And that's not happening with David. And I, I, I don't know why. I don't know why it is that David is allowed to act as a priest here. But I wonder if there is a hint in this of a future king who would come. And I wonder if that's part of what the story is today. A king who would lay aside his royal robes and take on the form and nature of a servant. A future king who would, who would lay aside his royal robes and stand before God on behalf of his people and offer himself as a sacrifice. Not offer other sheep and not offer goats and but offer himself as a burnt offering for sin that we might be forgiven and as a fellowship offering that we might be brought in and drawn near to him 
And who then blesses his people and who feeds us with his own body. Can I get an amen? amen. How about a loud amen? amen. Baptists can. Well, they can't shout, but they, you know. And so in the midst of the story of messiness and delight and confusion and death and judgment and grace and holiness and all of that, there, there's this hint of Jesus shining through. The scent of the Savior who leads his people in praise. This Savior who lays aside his royal robes and lays aside his majesty and becomes undignified for the sake of those who came to save. Who offers himself as a sacrifice so that we don't celebrate a box with a couple of stone tablets in it and an old covenant that can only condemn us. But we celebrate Jesus who is in a sense the new ark. He is the repository of the new covenant that doesn't condemn us. There is no condemnation. But a new covenant that frees us. And celebrate a box that represents the presence of God. We, we, re, we celebrate the presence of God in each of us. And it's like, is that not something worth da dancing for joy about? Is that not something worth shouting Amen about? Amen. A little bit of exuberant praise. Can we sing? It's late. Can we sing? In exuberant, in, in exuberant joy and do a little dance. Let's, let's, let, let's stand and let's sing. Um, great, our God has done great things. I know you're thirsty. I know you want your tea. I know the Sunday school kids are out there waiting for us.